Welcome to Repros Fight Back, a podcast where we explore all things reproductive health rights and justice. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and I'll be helping you stay informed around issues like birth control, abortion, sex education, and LGBTQ issues, and much, much more. Giving you the tools you need to take action and fight back. Okay, let's dive in. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. So this week's intro is going to be a little heavy, but that's because that's where my mind and my heart are right now. As many of you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I actually grew up about an hour and a half from Kenosha, where the shooting of Jacob Blake happened. And I am always equal parts furious and heartbroken when there are police shootings of unarmed Black people. But something about this one being from where I'm from, it just hit a little bit differently. My heart's just a little extra bit heavier, and I'm a little extra angry that it happened in Wisconsin. And that's not to say that I didn't think that something like this could happen in Wisconsin. I mean, I grew up there. I'm from there. I know that's not true. It just feels different this time because it is so close to home. So I've been struggling with that since it happened. And then on top of that, to then have the shooting of protesters who were out protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake was also just rage-inducing and devastating and just really makes it clear that things have got to change. We can't just keep going on as we are. There needs to be real systemic change in this country. We need to address the racism that is built into everything, into the systems, into the police. We have to change. It can't go on like this. So that is really where my heart has been at. It's been sad and angry and all the things. And so I did what I usually do. I'm lucky enough that I'm in a position that I'm able to donate when this happens. Not a lot, but I am lucky enough to be able to do some. So I made sure to donate to the Milwaukee Freedom Bail Fund, which was providing bail support to the protesters in Kenosha. And I also made sure to donate to somebody who was fundraising to take supplies to protesters in Kenosha, plus some other groups that I tend to donate to. So I tried to do my part. It doesn't feel like enough, like I should be doing more. But that is what I did for now, but I'm sure I will be doing more going forward. With that, and again, with the heavy heart for everything that is happening and the rage that it is still happening, let's move on to this week's episode. So this week, I had a really wonderful conversation with Jamil fields Allsbrook at the Center for American Progress. We talked about a new report they put out that is looking at treatments for women's health and beyond. So we know there are a lot of disparities in our healthcare system. And often when measuring a lot of this stuff, women, particularly women of color, aren't necessarily included in data or in clinical trials. So testing for new vaccines, we're talking about the coronavirus vaccine. Often a lot of that testing is done on white men. And so we don't know how it's going to impact across race, across gender, how it's going to affect pregnant people. 
So Jamil and I talk about this report and what it means that there are these disparities, not just in the healthcare system, but in the ways we are measuring data and in the ways we are developing treatments. So with that, I'm going to take you to my interview with Jamil. Hi, Jamil. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Jenny. Thank you for having me. Always good to talk to you. So before we get started, do you want to do a quick introduce yourself and include your preferred pronouns? Sure. So I am Jamil Fields Osbrook. I am the Director of Women's Health and Rights at the Center for American Progress, where I lead our team on strategic planning related to things related to women's health and reproductive health and rights and maternal health. And my preferred pronouns are she, her, and hers. Today, I'm really excited to talk about this report that y'all did on COVID and the vaccine that's being developed or hopefully will be developed soon. But I thought maybe we should start back a little bit and talk about what everything looks like right now. So if you want to talk a little bit on where we are with COVID right now, and I know another topic in that area that you're really good at also would be addressing racial disparities within COVID. So I think it's no surprise part of all of your listeners that in many ways we are where we've been for too far too long on COVID. We still have significantly high rates. Not every area has adequate testing. And also a lot of the health providers and particularly those providers like safety net providers were already stretched before the pandemic and remain stretched, not seeming to let up anytime soon particularly related to the health disparities. Early on, I think many were predicting, and unfortunately it proved to be true, that communities of color, particularly Black, Latino, and Indigenous community, would be among the hardest hit. And that is because of a number of factors. One, these communities tend to be essential workers. So our grocery store workers, nurses, all those people who definitely we can't live without, so they've still had to go to work while many of us are working from home. And that exposes them higher to those health disparities and high, more risk of COVID. Also, these same communities had increasingly high rates of chronic illnesses. And that's due to systemic racism that has long existed in our healthcare system and barriers to care and housing and environment and all these things that we don't have time to talk about have contributed to higher rates of asthma and cancer and HIV and a number of other illnesses that have made people more susceptible to not only get sick from COVID, but also be more likely to get seriously ill and in some cases even die. And so again, we talk about all the time where we are with COVID is that we have a pandemic, but we also have it being most severely impacting communities of color. It's so striking to me. We're in this situation where you have this pandemic that is impacting everybody, but you are seeing these communities that were already so stressed by disparities in healthcare before this started being so much more impacted right now. And plus all of the other things that are happening in those communities, it's a really tough time for communities of color right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing you mentioned sort of other things happening, police killings of unarmed Black men and shooting unarmed Black men and women, that adds anxiety, obviously. So there's been a number of studies that have talked about how people, all of us, have been impacted and having increased levels of anxiety and mental anguish as a result of the pandemic and being stuck in our houses and not going to work and not seeing our friends. 
And for those who also have to worry about, oh, will the police bust in my house and kill me? Or is my son or daughter safe if they go on a nature walk or run? Heaven forbid. That adds increased anxiety. The short way I've been talking about how the pandemic has impacted is just it has just exposed and confirmed many of the things we already knew about the healthcare system, housing, and systemic racism and all the things. And it's been a big confluence that has converged and unfortunately, again, impacted communities of color the most. I think for a lot of the Black listeners will be familiar with the phrase, if their mama's like mine, who would say, when America catches a cold, Black people catch pneumonia. And that, and the pandemic has just been so proof of that. Absolutely. And I think this actually sets us up to go right into the next part of the conversation, which is talking about developing a vaccine around COVID. And you all did a really great report. So we're really working on finding a vaccine. And some of those disparities that we're seeing within the healthcare system also show themselves within vaccine development. Do you maybe want to talk a little bit about that? For sure. So the report we put out was about inequitable treatments. And I should just say that it's an issue that we've thought about and been researching for quite a bit, even before the pandemic hit, because unfortunately, women and people of color and gender non-binary folks are being underrepresented or just excluded completely from clinical trial development in a way we know about. Many of your listeners will probably know about how the healthcare system and systemic oppression that has impacted women and people of color. But I think a lot of people don't realize that it carries over into clinical research and trials. And so historically, women, and that was the focus of the report, women were excluded completely from clinical trial development. And the reason being that it would impact women's reproductive health and impact their fertility And so there was just a blanket exclusion. And over time, women have been included and the policies have changed that women should be included, but there's still a lot of barriers that have prevented that from happening. And the same can be said about people of color. So people of color, there's a law that is supposed to require women and quote-unquote ethnic minorities to be included and adequately represented in clinical trials, but that frequently doesn't happen. And still we're dealing with a system where cisgender white men are the model and the frame for clinical trials. And as a result, you get therapies being developed or vaccines that being developed that don't consider some of the unique needs of different women and pregnant people and others. And so there's been some stark examples in history related to women. Generally, we've seen Ambien was on the market for 20 years before they changed the dose because they realized the dose was too strong for women. And there was over like 700 car accidents that involved people on Ambien. And so that was a lack of representation in the trials. Same as many probably know, the HPV vaccine works wonders, help prevent cancers. But research has come out showing that some of the vaccine does not address some of the strands that Black women get, some of the HPV strands. So these are just a couple examples of where you see both people of color and women being excluded or not adequately represented, and then you can have dire or adverse consequences. 
So I know it goes beyond policy for why women, and in particular women of color, may be underrepresented. And I know there's strong history for why women of color, in particular, may not be involved. It is a genuine and deserved mistrust of the healthcare system and mistrust of this idea that someone will kind of, you know, experiment on you and unlearn and that. And that has been born out of things like the Tuskegee experiment. And everyone remembers the example of Henrietta Lacks and all these examples. And even the founding of gynecology being on experimenting on Black women's bodies. And so that has resulted in a mistrust of the community and to not want to participate in these trials, which I totally get and totally appreciate. Absolutely understandable. Yeah, definitely understandable. But the adverse is that when we need these therapies and we need these treatments, we're not getting therapies and treatments that suit us at times. And so it can have dire health consequences. It's not just because we don't show up and so we're not in the trials. I think also the the research community has to contend with the fact of how they do recruitment and not going into these communities and not partnering with providers who these communities rely upon to make sure and to explain the benefits and why it might be useful for these communities to participate in the trials. And I should also just say the point when we're talking about clinical trials and clinical research, some of it, their trials are like the gold standard, but there's also just having data. And that is just also been underrepresented and not inclusive. And a lot of that is due to systemic sexism and racism in the system that has just thought it not valuable to count these communities. I mean, if you're not doing outreach to these communities and not putting the effort in to make sure they're being involved, you're obviously going to have underrepresentation. I think another area that the report touched on is barriers that pregnant people face in being included in these trials, then having data on how these drug therapies or whatever will affect pregnant or lactating people. I think we thought it was important to include this for a few reasons. Historically, pregnant people have also been excluded from clinical research because of concern around the pregnant person or concern around the fetus. And over time, scientists and medical experts have come to general consensus, though of course not everyone will agree, that it actually ends up can be more harmful to not consider the needs of these communities. And that doesn't always mean that this community should be in a trial, because if it's not safe or ethical, they should not be considered. But still, these communities should always be considered. And we should consider it's multiple stages of research and first needing to collect data. As it relates to COVID, early on, I think a lot of folks were like wondering and had a feeling and thought that based off of history of how pregnant people have fared under other respiratory illnesses like SARS or other public health crises like Ebola or Zika, that pregnant people might be among the most harmed. But there wasn't systematic data collection on this community. And there still isn't, unfortunately. The CDC put out some initial data a few weeks back that showed that pregnant people are, in fact, more likely to get more seriously ill because of COVID compared to other non-pregnant people of reproductive age, more likely to put on ventilation, more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to be in ICU. But we still don't have enough data. So even before we can get to a clinical trial, we should be collecting pregnant people's data. 
And then the second part of that is that if it is safe and ethical to include this community, including pregnant people in those trials, and one reporter did some digging a few weeks back and it found out, I think it was one of the drug developers now is considering the needs of pregnant people. And so what does that mean if we put a vaccine out to the public? Are we going to market and say it's safe for pregnant people, even if we don't know that? So it is more harmful to not consider this community and then to just go and say, well, market something as safe and effective for all when it may not be. Yeah. And I think that takes us back to the health impacts of this exclusion, right? When you don't know how it will impact the health of the people that aren't included in these trials or data sets, you get things like a lot of public health education around heart attack symptoms, right? But it's how it presents in men, not how it presents in women. And so people don't know how it presents differently. Yeah. And one thing I should add on, then some people Some of us have intersecting lives. And so if you're not including women of color adequately and you're not including pregnant people adequately, for those pregnant people of color, you can have a real convergence of a perfect storm. In particular, Black and Indigenous women were already three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications before covid This same CDC initial data I was talking around about pregnant people showed that among Black pregnant people were more likely to catch COVID. And so without an adequate treatment and without adequately considering these communities in a response, you can stand to exacerbate an existing public health crisis among these communities. So it can be even more problematic for pregnant people of color, Black and Indigenous people particularly. Yeah, I think the impacts on communities of color and among women with COVID are really striking. And I think also really important is something you were talking about is not collecting the data or the disaggregated data. So not knowing how it's affecting these different groups. For sure, because how can we address a problem when we haven't even properly assessed it? And how can we even say, well, this community shouldn't be included? We haven't even done the initial research and data to know it. It wasn't until recent times, and we put the exact year, which I'm blanking on, in the report, that even ensuring that the animal tests, that you had male and female animal tests, so before you even start doing the clinical research on humans. And then you also have this added issue of not only including pregnant people and women in clinical research that's applicable to everyone, we also have underinvestment in research in the conditions and illnesses that pregnant people and women generally are more likely to experience. So we still don't know enough about fibroids or endometriosis or even having more options around contraceptives. So it begs to reason, why is that? Why is there underinvestment in these conditions that impact certain communities? Let's turn specifically to COVID then and how it is impacting people. So we've talked about women in COVID. I think one of the groups we've talked about that you also haven't touched on yet is transgender and gender non-binary and how they're being represented. Unfortunately, the short answer is we don't know. There isn't adequate data around how these communities are being impacted. One thing we call for in the report is better collecting data, not just sex, but collecting data upon gender, including people's gender identity, which frequently is not done. 
And when it is done, you might only have, let's say, one great health center or provider collects that data. If you don't have some uniformity around it, then it's hard to make comparisons and hard to make broader generalizations about how these communities are impacted. And even when we, for instance, back to pregnant people, even when we do have some information about pregnant people, frequently it is pregnant women. And so it's hard to say, is it all pregnant people? Was it just pregnant women? And so the short answer is we just don't know. And I think everybody probably reads the headlines and know that our data about COVID is sketchy at best as a general matter. And so less known having complete disaggregated data by sex, gender identity, location, geography, age, race and ethnicity, all those things that we just don't have. And so it makes it hard to paint a picture of how is this community being impacted. One thing we do know is that gender non-binary people already experienced a significant amount of barriers to care even before the pandemic, discrimination. We've seen the Trump administration roll back protections under 1557 of LGBTQ folks. We've seen some courts recently block that. Yay. But even though we don't know the data around how these communities have been impacted, it's not a far stretch to know that the barriers to care these communities are experiencing have only been worsened. I think that's absolutely true. Communities that were already marginalized are just continuing to be further marginalized. And this pandemic is just exacerbating and laying it bare, which hopefully will be helpful to addressing that people are seeing it. But I don't know. That's my hope. I'm hopeful. I've been saying that everywhere I go is one thing that I'm hoping is a bright light at the end of this tunnel is that we don't have to keep proving how broken our healthcare system is. Let's skip past that point of the conversation. Let's just skip straight to the solutions. And we know they can't be just small little things. We need a complete overhaul. But that's not what we're here to talk about, but we do. So one of the things you talked about is the impact of COVID on pregnant people and how it's impacting them. But we've talked a little bit less about the health system and the maternal health system and how that's being impacted by the pandemic. Good question. So as I mentioned, there was already a crisis. And that crisis underlying cause for the maternal health crisis has been systemic racism for sure. And that has impacted and showed up in a number of ways, which have been exacerbated because of COVID. So for example, there's been a number of studies that have shown that Black women's pain is more frequently ignored. And a COVID concern overlying on top of that is that when you have hospitals limiting visitors and women limiting your support system. So whether or not you have a spouse in the room for delivery or a doula, it can mean that a Black pregnant woman is left there basically exposed without someone there to advocate for them. So that has been a concern around COVID. We mentioned about how the healthcare system has stretched hospitals and providers who disproportionately serve communities of color. And so what that can mean is that We have pregnant people in hospitals that might not be adequately equipped to serve them and might not have enough beds or enough providers or others to serve them as well. And the last piece I'll say about pregnant people goes back to the clinical trials piece is that I think a lot of people don't realize, and I'll say quite frankly, I didn't realize it before digging into this work more is that there is a rule requiring that a pregnant person get the consent to participate in research if the benefit of the trial would solely be for the fetus. 
for us repro folks, just think about that. A pregnant person having to go ask their mate, can they participate in a trial? Even if they consent and even if they think that it's good for them, that could be an exacerbation to keep more pregnant people out of participating in trials, even for those who might want to are already existing problems. So we focused a lot on the problems of which there are legion. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about what needs to be done. What can we do? First, we need better data. That's the first step, which sounds simple and people always can discount that. But it's just important. We need better data because we need that to assess the problem in order to treat it. And we just don't have it. And so we need better disaggregated data. We need also a vaccine where it is safe and effective for pregnant people to use. We need, and I should say on those two, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, both have introduced a bill to help to that effect, both around data collection and ensuring adequate representation among pregnant people in clinical trials. It's called the Maternal Health Pandemic Response Act. So that could be a good step in the right direction. But even beyond just COVID, we also need to just completely revamp the system, both in terms of data collection, both changing our standards around what therapies get approved. So one way that we propose in the report to help address this problem is that the FDA should be not be approving therapies for everyone if We don't have data to show that the therapy is effective for everyone. We don't know it's effective for pregnant people or we don't know it's effective for Black people or Asian people or Latina people, then it either shouldn't get approved or that should be very clear that it's not. I think the clinical research community has to contend with its own recruitment efforts and reaching out and including a diverse, well-represented group of people in clinical trials, both for COVID and beyond. And then lastly, we also need to change some of those arcane regulatory standards that I think the general consensus now is that women and pregnant people should be included as a default unless there's reasons to prove it's not, but policy should match that. So we shouldn't have policies requiring a pregnant person to go get consent of their spouse in order to participate. And also we need better education and make sure that People are fully informed about therapies and treatments so that there is agency to make a decision, which is obviously the crux of reproductive justice, to be able to make an informed decision before you input something into your body about what are the benefits, what are the risks, and frequently, sometimes we don't have that knowledge for ourselves. So important to have informed consent. Again, with that complicated history you touched on earlier, it's so important to make sure that people are informed about what they are consenting to put in their bodies. Definitely. One thing we touch on in the report is that the communities of color are more likely to be involved in clinical trials that have some sort of reduced kind of informed consent and haven't given enough information about it. There's just a building of trust, obviously, that has to happen, and policies have to change to do that. Practices have to change to do that. A mindset has to change. Because, I I mean, I get it. I mean, I talk to my family and the running joke. People are like, I'm not going to get that right away. 
but the research community has to change some things in order to make people trust and believe. And we haven't even talked at all about access and <laughs> access or even just the huge anti-vax movement right now that may be yeah. encouraging people to not get it. There's so much other stuff. Exactly. And we have to make sure we have insurance policies in place that make sure everyone able to get coverage for get the vaccine or in good treatment at no cost. People, if you're in an ACA plan, you should be able to get the vaccine without any cost. But what about those people who signed up for the junk plans? And what's going to happen with the treatment? That's not necessarily covered. So this is so many things that we have to make sure to make sure the response considers all of us and all of us equitably. So we always like to end with what can listeners do? What actions can listeners take? I would, as a very concrete step, urge your Congress members to support the Maternal Health Pandemic Response Act. As a broader, just general matter beyond COVID, I would also encourage people to just sort of pay attention to this issue and, again, urge lawmakers to pay attention and recognize that it's a very wonky issue that many people might not realize, but it is impact us. It could be even life or death for us. And lastly, to just for those who do feel safe or compelled to consider participating in some of the clinical trials. Jamil, thank you so much for being here. I, as always, it was a pleasure talking to you. It is a pleasure talking to you too, Jenny. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. It was a lot of things that I hadn't really thought a ton about. You get so focused on disparities within the healthcare system, and I hadn't put the time into thinking about the disparities that you see within the way treatments are developed. So it was really good to think about that and to talk about it. So I hope you all enjoyed it. And as usual, if you all have anything you want to reach out to us about, topics you want us to discuss, please feel free to email me. You can email me at Jenny at reprosefightback.com or you can reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at reprosefightback or on Instagram at reprosefb. And with that, I will see y'all in two weeks. For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, please visit us at our website at reprosefightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Repros Fight Back and on Instagram at Repros FB. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.